0: Can you describe, through the Noongar Nation story, how property as redress plays out in the urban context and how you understand it to be a threat to Aboriginal rights to land and self-determination in the long term?
1: We're listening in on a conversation between Genevieve Murray, Joel Sherwood-Spring, with Libby Porter and Nama Blackman-Thomas. It's a truth-telling of sorts about how urban planning and the built environment professions are implicated in the settler colonial process. And Genevieve just asked the group a big question about how Libby and Nama have used the Noongar case to talk about the idea of property as redress, an idea they wrote about recently in the International Journal of Urban and Regional Research. G'day. I'm Glenn Kelly, the CEO of the Southwest Aboriginal Land and Sea Council, with a short update. The negotiations between the land council and the state government aimed at resolving the Nyungar native title claims are nearing completion
0: for our listeners, um, maybe fill in some details. So this is a very important settlement that kind of comes out of a, of a native title process, although it's um, actually not technically a native title outcome, as I understand it, but is a, the result of a negotiated settlement to um, enable the uh, the Noongar nation to be uh, called the traditional owners of the, um, the region uh, that is their country.
1: In essence... The state government is offering a package of benefits in exchange for the permanent withdrawal of Noongar native title claims. That is an exchange of native title for real title and a series of other benefits.
0: On the basis that they exting- agree to the extinguishment of their native title, and of course this has triggered you know, a lot of discussion and debate,
1: 20 years after the High Court's Mabo
0: decision indigenous people in western australia are bitterly divided over the state government's
1: billion dollar offer for the extinguishment of native title in the southwest
2: so the Noongar nation thing was property as redress because yep. it was a conversation about native title claiming where the government was was making essentially a A barter or a trade off deal with the Noongar people to say we'll give you a bit of land back in the city.
1: That's Joel Sherwood Spring, a Wiradjuri man raised between Redfern and Alice Springs.
0: That object is offered as redress for this kind of history of of appalling violence and, and dispossession.
2: But that disqualifies and cancels out your claim to the rest of the Noongar land that is rightfully theirs as a people's.
0: And it kind of looks as if it might be a a good thing.
2: But that in and of itself is a very like creative tool of the coloniser to use the sort of direct means of look there's property in the city that is very equitable and that you could use to do this but that then cancels out the rights of the people who aren't living in the city to claim land outside of that.
0: And yet, of course, uh, it has produced an enormous contest from many other parts of the Noongar nation who are saying, no, um, that's that's not an expression of our sovereignty and to give up our our native title rights in the language of the Western legal system under those conditions is is absolutely not okay.
1: The $1.3 billion Noongar native title deal is in its final stages of negotiation. The South West Land and Sea Council has counted the votes from the six different polls held across the six different Noongar nations. But there's still opposition to the deal, and some members are questioning the level of representation in the vote.
2: So it's going, you have claim to this land, but only through the lens of white ownership of land and Western claims, and Western recognised claims to land.
0: And it's a mechanism for denying sovereignty. Yeah. Which really brings us back to, okay, so land is still here. So in Australian language, country is still existing. So that's still Noongar country, regardless of what the Western legal system wants to call it, um, whether it's traditionally owned and recognised or whatever, it's still there. Um, And it is still a fundamentally antagonistic relationship. And we can maybe use that as a as a lens into another way of thinking about property, not in this highly object-like, um, offered as redress, you know, linear, static kind of way, but as something else that might break open some new ground for us. And that's what we find exciting um, to think about.
1: About six months ago, I asked Genevieve Murray and Joel Sherwood Spring from the Future Method Design Studio in Sydney to track down people who are working at the intersection of Western and Indigenous land management and built environment practice in their work.
2: Are there opportunities for alternative temporalities in either recognizing Indigenous ways of being, knowing and doing on land to better inform just how Libby was speaking now, a response to Indigenous sovereignty on land to have a more equitable, more just and sustainable relationship, looking into the future ecologically and otherwise?
1: I specifically asked Jen and Joel to create this series because their work, their practice already sits at this interface.
0: There's some really important groundwork that is being done in Australia, which is articulating the intersection of the settler colonial condition with land, with, with place, with people, with with bodies in space and time. And there's so little understanding of it within the profession about the role of property and the role of architecture in that dynamic.
1: And today, they're talking with Libby Porter from RMIT University and Nama Blackman-Thomas from the University of Sydney about property, or more accurately, three ways of thinking about property in settler colonial cities like Sydney. And we've already heard about one, property as redress. But we'll also hear about property as land and property as object.
0: Hi, I'm Libby Porter. Uh, I'm an uninvited guest on Woiwurrung, Boonwurrung lands. Libby Porter is one person who is doing laying the groundwork and the foundations for us to further the research. I am a researcher and educator at RMIT University at the Centre for Urban Research. Nama Blackman-Thomas, who we're talking with today, is also another researcher working on that.
3: Hi, I'm Nama. I am a lecturer at the University of Sydney in the School of Geoscience. I Moved here two weeks ago huh, from Townsville.
2: Firstly, I'd like to start with land.
1: Nama grew up in Israel but moved to Townsville in North Queensland in 2014 to do research on the countries of the Bindal and Wugarukabar people's land. Particularly land in the
2: urban context because it seems to be removed from the conversation.
1: The city is the place where we
0: have rendered ourselves so unable to see land anymore that we, it's really hard to recognise.
2: There's a misconception that this is not where dispossession and settlement could possibly be enacted.
0: In the end, imperialism is all about land. it's all about territory, um, and in the end, everything comes down to land. So at the heart of all of the dynamics of the settler colonial experience is land. So if that is, if we put that at the centre, that kind of struggle for territory, then we can start to think about how that works.
2: So property is land is sort of one that is the kind of continuous destabilizer of that system.
0: In order to take land, you have to take it. Like, you, you, li- you have to be on it. Um, you have to physically remove it from the order that was already here. So the, the formation of building is part of the settler colonial condition because it actually gives it form and allows settlers, white invaders in, in the case that we're talking about um, here to to in fact take possession um, and to do the work of dispossession.
2: It's quite interesting to think about the built environment, the buildings that we inhabit. It, it is like the evidence and also the enacting of that process. Um, buildings themselves do operate as literal expressions mm-hmm. of extracted capital extracted material
0: yeah absolutely i agree um and i guess you know we can think of the bu- even just the building process um as so fundamentally part of that in in its actual embodiment because you know buildings literally extract as you said they don't just extract capital and the the rent value of the land but they literally extract the country
3: um, in order to build them so so our buildings, the uni are, buildings are a really yeah. good example yeah. if you look at like there a recreation of something that clearly had nothing to do with the space where it was recreated and yet it emulates this continent mm. elsewhere yeah. in this you know space that we don't ask questions about anymore like it's it's the classic australia somehow now you know it also kind of directs us towards the second notion which is about property as object property as object is probably the the best way to describe it is the most sort of intuitive taken for granted idea of property. If you ask somebody in the street, do you own property, they say, oh, yeah, I own a house in Surrey Hills.
2: In relationship of property as object, we can kind of see that through the relationship of housing, housing markets, in which space is kind of conceptualized as an object as a commodity and how that becomes a mesh within a financialized system that is property is facilitated by the state and the city and other things
3: that's you know that's that's property as object is and and there's a great promise in it because it sounds very liberal and very colorblind but if you you know if you go back to the sort of basic notion of property anybody can own it doesn't matter where you come from you know if you can if you can afford it no problem, you know? And, and in that sense, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a right. It's an exclusive right to, to something. Right. So oftentimes when you talk to people about, about, you know, property enacting racial relations of domination or whatever, it sounds very foreign to them because what, that's just, it's a thing I own. How does it do anything? The specific case we talk about is a case of, um, urban development, very sort of classic case where they decided to, I guess, uh, reform in a way the CBD area in Townsville.
2: The Townsville thing is the direct evidence of a racialized view of the use of public space Mm. being used to segregate and push Mm. Aboriginal people out of the city center.
3: Make it a little bit more tempting for outsiders, a bit lucrat- more lucrative, I guess, as an investment. So there's a bit more money coming in, gentrified a little bit as much as it's possible in Townsville. And so there was a lot of money that was being invested into a very sort of specific stretch um, in the CBD, uh, turning it into a street mall, etc. The The underlying, or underlying sort of discourse of that was that there was a lot of um, homelessness in the In that particular area, uh, predominantly indigenous
2: which was brought on by large scale redevelopment
3: that really prompted the city council to to take action. The outcome of that was that the market is a very cool place to go to today, much better than it was, but that there's also it's highly policed, so there's huge police presence um, in those particular areas. Um, Ongoing inspection of um, Indigenous people, asking for you know where you know, whereabouts, moving on people, etc. So it did what it was supposed to do in both of the levels: brought money in, pushed Indigenous people out, and really sort of into confined um, spaces around the city.
1: You're listening to City Road on 2 ser 107.3 FM in Sydney. We've been listening in on a conversation between Genevieve Murray and Joel Sherwood Spring with Libby Porter and Nama Blatman-Thomas. And we've been talking about three big ideas, property as land, property as object, and property as redress. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, what's all this got to do with me? Well, we're turning to that next. Libby talks about how Indigenous erasure, so erasure of land, erasure of languages, erasure of culture, has and still is central to urban planning systems in settler societies like Australia. Libyan Nama suggests that cities are a key site for indigenous erasure. But before that, Nama kicks us off by reminding us what settler colonialism is and how you might be implicated in it.
3: There's a world of literature already about settler colonialism. So I'll just take a very narrow perspective into it, which is basically that it's a structure of, I guess, uh, governance and control uh, where white people, uh, European people arrive to a new territory, new area, and create a new political entity there. So a new nation state, we're talking about something that is ongoing. That is not just a one-time sort of invasion or one-time event, but really something that um, transforms the nature of of that place invaded. And, you know, everything that comes with it, social arrangements and economic arrangements and political constitutions, etc., that undo or at least attempt to undo the former arrangements of that territory.
0: From a a sort of policy governance perspective, um, of course, you know, Planning as a discipline, my discipline, and geography um, is fully complicit in the colonial project. Um, in fact, is sort of central to it. It can't, you know, can't happen without it uh, because it's the form of governance that comes and is imposed on something that was obviously already here um, and uh, is used to to do all that work of, of erasure. That, of course, never do anything to to grapple with and then unpick the underlying p- foundation of the will to erase and the the the. Um, the the ongoing persistent attempt by the settler colonial structure as we began with um to to continue to dispossess like that that is at heart the thing that drives it all forward and of course capitalism is totally um uh, Im- imbricated in that process it it has to be so that's the kind of the, the mechanism through which it happens um so I guess that's one one kind of take on how governance and capital and, and land and property kind of start to come together um, and seduce us into
1: thinking that we're all doing the right thing. And cities are very important to this form of settler seduction or settler delusion about cities.
3: There is a, a lot of complexity actually in that relationship in the, the sort of the
0: big racialized binary that, that's very distorted, obviously, that um, separates whites European civilization into cities and black people, inferior people, um, less developed savages into everywhere else that isn't the city, Um city you know, being read here as the kind of crucible of, of civilisation, it's a kind of easy jump to make to say, well, the city's not an Indigenous place. It's no longer land. It's no longer Indigenous land. So there's this kind of other symbolic but highly material, of course, um, work of erasure that's going on. So the city does this just really well. Um, it's, the, it's the crux of, of that process. Um, underway and that, that dynamic always playing off each other.
3: There is a lot of reinvention and recreation of Indigeneity in those spaces as well. It's not that just that settlers build British buildings, um, but that Indigenous people are constantly asking themselves, what makes this place mine if I'm not from here? What makes the place I'm from mine? Um, how do I... Um, materialise those relationships to make sure that my sovereignty is, is is visible to those who try to to erase it.
0: So there's, a, of course, a really strong popular perception, popular as in non-Indigenous perception in Australia at least, um, and in many settler colonial countries, that Indigenous people are somewhere else and indeed some else. You know, they belong to a time past and they're not here in the cities where it's perceived that everybody else is. And a really good way of demonstrating this is the difference between the areas of land across the Australian continent that have been returned under various forms of land rights, whether it be um, actual land rights regimes or as Indigenous protected areas or as native title settlements and and so on and so forth, more than 95% of which are in remote areas, far, far away from where the rest of the mainstream Australian population lives, and yet more than 70% of of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population of Australia, as taken as a nation state, live in cities. So there's a fundamental disconnection between our ability to think about the, the people-place relationship, that, so where country is, that we can recognise as country in the urban context and we are not mature enough yet to be able to understand what that is.
1: You've been listening to City Road on 2SER, 107.3 FM in Sydney. We've been listening in on a conversation between Genevieve Murray, Joel Sherwood-Spring, Libby Porter and Nama Blatman-Thomas. And we've been talking about three very big ideas, property as land, property as object and property as redress. And if you'd like to read more about this work, we have a link to Nama and Libby's paper, on this very topic on our website at cityroadpod.org. And if you liked this episode, you might also like our chat with Sarah Keenan on the colonial basis of the Torrens land titling system. It's a good one. The details are also on our website. I'm Dallas Rogers. See you next time.